Good afternoon. Thanks for being with us on this Thursday before what will be a long weekend for many, many people. We talked about this on the show yesterday, the announcement from BC Ferries that because a ship that was supposed to be back in service is now experiencing an extended refit. We know more than 6,000 BC Ferry bookings had to be reassigned. And that warning from BC Ferries that came out saying it is going to be very, very busy at the terminals. Well, that's right. We do expect smooth sailing for customers that do have bookings. But for anybody who is planning on traveling as a uh, standby passenger in a vehicle, they could expect multiple sailing waits, uh, particularly Thursday and Friday out of our Tawasin terminal and then returning from Vancouver Island, Sports Bay on the holiday Monday. That was Deborah Marshall with BC Ferries speaking yesterday. So that warning is specifically for passengers that will be on the Tawasin-Swartz Bay route for the Canada Day long weekend, saying that capacity will be less because of that ship, the one vessel being out of service. Well, joining us now to talk a little bit more about this is Leonard Krogh, the mayor of Nanaimo. Mayor, thank you so much for being with us. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. I know some people are kind of making the joke, I suppose, uh, trying to make the best of it, but saying, you know, it's a long weekend because there's a ferry out of service or there are there are delays and there are warnings now that it's going to be very busy. But uh, not funny for anybody really that needs to go to and from Vancouver Island and the mainland. What was your thought when you first heard that uh, the one vessel that is going to be in the refit dock longer and uh, this warning was put out? Well, I hate to say it, but uh, tomorrow will be the uh, one-year anniversary of you and I talking about the very same kinds of problems <laughs> a year ago. We could have uh, just replayed that that conversation from a year ago. Uh, quite, quite possibly, and forgive me, but it, it does give a whole new meaning to the term long weekend when you're stuck in a ferry terminal with uh, the family dog and the kids and everybody else anxiously waiting to get to Vancouver Island to enjoy the beauty and uh, greenery over here. Uh, look, uh, joking aside, uh, obviously uh, very upsetting for thousands of British Columbians um, who anticipate and look forward to this weekend celebrating Canada Day and, and, and getting away from the, uh, no no offense, the smoke of, uh, of the big city, as we say, on the island. Uh, very stressful. Uh, and the ongoing nature of this problem is a bit frustrating. I uh, I must say, I and, and forgive one more bad line here, the vessel that's actually down is the coastal celebration, and I don't think there'll be much celebrating on the coast uh, this weekend for people who had anticipated uh, a long weekend of pleasure instead of a long weekend of waiting and or simply having to give up on their holiday plans. Right. No, uh, not uh, a lot of celebration there for sure. What does it do though as well in that people will hear this? So even I think before this warning went out, we have seen so many delays and cancellations, especially on, on long weekends. I mean, there are people that, that wouldn't even plan that trip even if things there wasn't some uh, the coastal celebration still in the refit, even if it was uh, sailing as as normal, because of the anticipation, the possibility, and what kind of an impact does that have even on Nanaimo businesses and on tourism on the island? Look, as as we're all climbing still back out of the pit of COVID, 
anything that discourages people from coming to our city, whether it's for conventions in our lovely convention center, we've just opened up a, a brand new hotel beside it, the Marriott, which is uh, a lovely place to visit. Uh, this has a significant negative impact. Um, we want and welcome visitors to Vancouver Island and particularly to Nanaimo. Uh, it's a great uh, stopping off point for you to use to go and visit other parts of the island and, and make it your home base. So this has an impact on our economy, which, as I say, after COVID and the extreme uh, damage that was done as a result of that, this is the last thing we need or want. So I am hopeful that uh, BC Ferries, uh, facing the challenges it does, I appreciate with technology and getting staffing, many businesses are having trouble getting staff and people, uh, is simply going to have to redouble its efforts uh, and uh, get vessels that we can rely on, plan the refitting appropriately, and ensure that these peak periods are, are in fact success stories, not more cause for of what I will call uh, ultimately a bad news story. And when you say plan the refit accordingly, and I did ask Deb Marshall about that yesterday in that it was supposed to be, there was a two-week window where if it had come out of refit on time, it would have been, I think, two weeks before the long weekend. Do you think there's a better way of doing it? So if you can anticipate there could very well be delays that it wouldn't butt up and in this case go through a long weekend? Well, I, let me just say, as someone who's, uh, my wife and I have had renos done at our house a couple of times, when have you ever seen a renovation that was completed on time or on budget? <laughs> I, I, I don't want to sound cheeky and sarcastic when I say that, but I guess I am being cheeky and sarcastic. The truth is, if you're coming up against a long weekend, a two-week window, when you're dealing with refitting a, a, a vessel of that size and complexity, probably not the best plan. And what about residents as well, in that I'm guessing a lot of people would choose not to be on the ferries if they didn't have to be, especially on a long weekend. But it does very much also limit the movement of residents, maybe people that aren't going away for a long weekend, but using ferries to get from A to B. Well, exactly. I mean, look, there are still numerous Vancouver Islanders, citizens of, of my city, who will be traveling or want to travel on Monday, for instance, to go to Vancouver because they have early medical appointments on, on Tuesday. I mean, we have a, a dearth of specialists. We don't have a cancer agency here, etc. There are a lot of folks who have to get to the lower mainland who aren't getting their medical services in Victoria who need to be in Vancouver. There are lots of workers who are, you know, reliant on going back and forth, uh, uh, people who are starting or planning longer vacations, and, and the commerce and the goods uh, generally. I mean, we rely, nine, you know, the old number was uh, 100 years ago, 97% of the food in Vancouver Island was grown, produced here, and 3% and imported. Now it's pretty much the reverse. So we're terribly reliant on ferries. I, I don't think people who don't live in Vancouver Island appreciate the crucial importance of a an operating and a reliable ferry service uh, is to our our life, period. And when we talk about this as well, the Premier was asked about this yesterday. He too said it's not acceptable that this is happening again on a long weekend, but also said he understood the challenges that faces BC Ferries. You mentioned staffing and having more reliable vessels. What else do you think could be done? You know, it's, it may be time to talk about uh, 
varying fare rates, which they've been using to some extent, encouraging people to travel at different times, even for a long weekend, so that it becomes worthwhile to try and persuade your your employer, your boss, or shut your business for a day to come a day early. There may be some things we could do to even uh, level out the load so that even if there is a vessel that's not in service, you've got you can spread that high demand out over time. I mean, we all get it. You know, hydro has to have enough electricity to meet peak demand. The ferries have to have enough uh, available vessels uh, and space on vessels to meet peak demand, and that's that's hard to gauge. But uh, it it may be worth looking at different experiments. It may be worth bringing somebody in from the outside too to look at the operations. It never hurts. Uh, I know BC Ferries is working hard. They're trying to do their best. They're a public service. But I can't emphasize enough uh, for uh, the uh, those of us on Vancouver Island, uh, we are a ferry-dependent part of the world. Right. And we often hear as well that the ferries are considered part of the highway system. And if they are truly part of the highway system, I, I mean, uh, if you had a, a stretch of highway that went out of uh, service every long weekend, I think people would be very upset about that. Imagine shutting, uh, you know, uh, the Coquihalla on a weekend. <laughs> it's 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 inconceivable, mind you. I mean, uh, the and and the fires uh, obviously point out challenges uh, recently on the island, which is not quite related to your topic today. But you know, if we had an operating rail line, Port Alberni wouldn't have been isolated for several weeks on end because of the fire. Uh, we we need to accept the fact that. Literally, we are just shy of a million people living on Vancouver Island. That is makes Vancouver Island larger than the provinces of Prince Edward Island, New Brunswick, Newfoundland, and the territories. Uh, we are not some little obscure place where people go to retire and die anymore. Uh, we are an integral part of the province, and we are a million strong nearly, and we need uh, reliable ferries. Right. Dare dare I ask that uh, hitting the million po- population mark, does that reignite the conversation about a fixed link? Uh, I Look, I'm not going to advocate for a fixed link because firstly, I think to, to deliver uh, services, vehicles, etc. on a fixed link for a million people, even though it's an extraordinary number, uh, the cost would be ridiculous, and where you would build it, where it might be even feasible from an engineering perspective, I think just puts it uh, puts it completely off the table. Uh, I expect we'll be using ferries 10 years from now, 50 years from now, 100 years from now, unless we're all flying in our own little personal planes or whatever the equivalent will be. But realistically, no. So, uh, you know, let's put our money into that which works and which is needed and which people are used to, and that is a safe, reliable ferry service. And in fairness to BC Ferries, their safety record, I think should be emphasized here as a compliment to them, is amazing. And we are very lucky in this part of the world compared to other places. So there's my compliments to them and my sympathies for the stress that their staff and poor Deborah Marshall, I don't know what she's getting paid, but she probably deserves a raise <laughs> because I'm sure she gets a lot of flack uh, in her position. All right. Uh, Leonard Krogh, we'll leave it there for today. Uh, same time next year? Uh, sounds good to me, Jill. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.
Well, uh, some sad news. It was confirmed earlier today that Canada's most famous and celebrated sex educator passed away at the age of 93, talking about Sue Johansson. And we heard from Sue Johansson's daughter earlier today as well, remembering what it was like growing up with such a famous mom. Well, first off, it's the first thing that everybody always asks me when they meet me, oh my God, you're Sue Johansson's daughter. What was it like having her as a mother? And I have to say, until I was a teenager, I was raised in a pretty normal suburban um, environment at, at home. You know, she was just a mom. And, um, but once I turned a te- became a teenager and she opened up the Don Mills birth control clinic for teenagers, that was it. The you know, the the roof blew off. And so it was very exciting to watch all that and to see her um, on that journey. But um, I couldn't really approach my mom too much about sex and sexuality. I didn't want to hear about it from her. I wanted to hear about it from my friends and from my boyfriend. So um, that was a journey. That was her daughter, Jane. She was speaking with Global News last year when the documentary Sex with Sue had just made its debut. Well, Maureen McGrath is joining us now, the host of the Sunday Night Health Show right here on CKNW. Maureen, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure, Jill. Thanks so much for having me. What were your thoughts of Sue Johansson and kind of how she paved the way and became such a well-known sex educator? Well, I think she was just wonderful. And I think she's been revered as a forthright educator. She filled a massive gap in sex education. She was a trailblazer really to open up a birth control uh, clinic just after it became legalized in Canada, 18 years before abortion became legal. I mean, I think on some level it can't have been easy for her, but she was such a wonderful person and so relatable and People thought if, if this woman who looks like my grandmother and, you know, is very straightforward, can talk about fun and pleasure and all the rest, then, you know, I'm going with it. <laughs> and that's a lot of people have been commenting on that. And certainly it's been talked about before. Not that a sex educator needs to look a certain way, but she did with the glasses and her style. She did kind of look like a grandma. Yes. And you have to be able to speak to people about sex in a very straightforward, non-judgmental fashion. And she was able to accomplish that across the U.S. and Canada through TV and radio. Now, I want to play uh, just a short clip and uh, might not be suitable for all audience members, but it's not it's not that outrageous. But this was Sue Johansson and an appearance that she made on Conan O'Brien. Just a little bit of their conversation. I was told mm. that the first thing you want to do is dispel some common myths. Yes. Is that true? Well, so many people have such bad ideas, wrong ideas about human sexuality. Mm-hmm. Uh, men are convinced that to be a good lover, they've got to have this humongous penis with an erection that is so rigid you can strike matches on it. That uh, led to a, a lot of back and forth, and she she went on to say, "You don't you don't need any of that." So, but I mean, there she was on Conan O'Brien, just uh, just making people laugh and talking about it. 
That's exactly right. Um, no, there are so many myths about sex to dispel. I thought it was going to be about the power men have in sex. But anyway, um, you know, there's just so many different things. And, you know, when you're laughing about it and you're learning at the same time, there, there's no greater gift to people because it's such an important subject. And it's so related to gen overall general health as well. Uh, with your career, uh, talking about, uh, I know it's the health show now, it was the sex show before, and certainly tackling a lot of those topics as well. Was Sue Johansson uh, kind of uh, somebody that, that you followed or, or had an impact, do you think, on your career? Well, of course. I mean, she's a registered nurse. I'm a registered nurse. We're all about education. You know, I think I'm a pretty straightforward person and non-judgmental as well. I like to think of myself as non-judgmental. I see the importance of this subject. I see the uh, discomfort that people have around this subject. I see the huge need that continues to exist today. And, you know, of course, I mean, she was a trailblazer. I mean, loved her approach, loved her attitude. You know, um, I dye my hair. That's different. No, <laughs> I will always dye my hair. Um, but, you know, she just had a, a certain way. And, and I think that that needs to continue, even in the face of, of the discomfort and the laws that and legislation that has been changing around things that are related to sex and sexuality. So, um, of course, she's had a, a tremendous impact on, on my career. I know uh, what we heard today when it was announced that she had passed away, that uh, she uh, had passed away in a long-term care facility uh, in Ontario. Her family was with her as well. I don't know I don't know a lot about what led up to her death, but I'm guessing that, uh, like many people, she would be horrified with what's happening with women's rights and reproductive rights in the United States. Oh, she absolutely be horrified. I'm, I'm sure that is what launched her career, the fact that we were actually making progress for women in 1970. Um, I mean, I think we've taken, you know, so many steps backward. And, you know, I've received so many messages today, which I'm, I'm really surprised about from patients and friends and people that know the work that I do. And they've all said, you know, she helped me so much. And, you know, they so many people have felt so badly because they felt that they had received such great gifts from her. Do you think it would be as controversial today? I mean, I guess th there would be some topics that would be the same, other things that she would focus on. But uh, I mean, a, a much different reaction, I think, when she started doing radio and started uh, doing radio and TV and talking about the, these topics, again, that, that people were and in many cases are still uncomfortable. Yeah, people still are. And I think they, you know, the, one of the reasons maybe she became so infamous, so, so famous uh, on, with so many people is because she was hilarious. People saw the humor in it. And so they were able to accept it today, given the division in politics and the political landscape and and the fact that um, women are you know not advancing as maybe they were back in 1970 at the same rate. Um, you know, this is needed even even more but i and you know she is still needed <laughs> is the bottom line and i think she'll live on in people's hearts and minds and bedrooms for a long time and how important is it and and you must see this in your practice and what you do as well in that the, somebody might make the argument oh well you can google anything now and you can get uh, the 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 uh, google response you can find out to the answers to your questions but how important is it to have an actual person, an actual human being that can talk about this stuff? Well, I think it's critical because you want to share your own story. In the presentations that I give across this country, 
you know, I will, I will give them everything. I talk about everything. I don't want to withhold any information. And, and afterward, people still want to share their personal story, whether it be at that presentation during that time or in a follow-up appointment, because there's nothing like connecting with somebody. Somebody actually understands what your question is, what your thoughts are, what your fetishes are, what your ideas are, what, you know, the sex education you may or may not have had, or the messages that you may have received that were unhealthy and inappropriate. Um, so I still think there's a huge need and a lot of sex educators have gone online, especially since the pandemic, but nothing like sitting down in a room, you know, chair to chair, just letting it all out. <laughs> and I would think too, that that was part of her appeal as well. Like you said, this amazing sense of humor. Uh, she knew what she was talking about. She also seemed, I, I never met her in person, but she seemed like somebody who, even if you were uncomfortable with the subject matter, that she would be really approachable and really easy to talk to. Absolutely. I think she put a nation at ease. I think she was just that that type that you just wanted to sit down and have, you know, chicken soup with her and <laughs> and talk about your sex life, basically, and all the questions that people had. And so many questions go unanswered for people for decades. I mean, I've had people talk to me in their 60s that they'd never told somebody else, you know, and so I think she did just a tremendous job educating the masses because that was what was needed at the time and, and continues to be a need. Mm, yeah, she well, she Badly. definitely she didn't put Conan O'Brien at ease because that that clip goes on. He seemed a little uncomfortable, but also it was hilarious, and <laughs> she made a lot more jokes. And uh, Ray Romano was on the, the couch there. Uh, he was making jokes about himself too. But again, that information, like you said, that that people probably in many cases don't seek out or too embarrassed for whatever reason uh, to, to to try and figure it out. Yeah, and I think they people felt she was talking directly to them. You know, you talked about having that one-on-one. -on -one. I think people got that from her in some magical way. All right. Well, Maureen, thank you so much for joining us and for talking about Sue Johansson today. Appreciate, as always, appreciate your time, and we'll talk to you again soon. You're so welcome. I just would like to one last quote of hers that mm -hmm. I'd like for everyone to remember. I hope it's okay. Horny oh, yes. is a beautiful thing. Sorry, what was the quote? <laughs> Horny is a beautiful thing. <laughs> <laughs> that is a great quote from Sue Johansson. All right. All right. Take care. Maureen, thank you so much. We have been talking a lot about Bill C-18 and what this means for Canadian news, for access to Canadian news. One of the stories earlier today talking about the fallout from the federal government's Online News Act. Facebook parent Meta is now terminating a contract with the Canadian press. And this was a contract that saw the digital giant support the hiring of a limited number of emerging journalists at the National Newswire Service. The news our agency was told yesterday that Meta will end the contract, which has funded, according to the Canadian press, about 30 reporting fellowship positions for early career journalists. And that's since the program started in 2020. There are also concerns with news that the big, the uh, online giants are going to remove the Canadian content. And joining us to talk a bit more about this is Rosa Adario, Communications Manager with the group Open Media. Rosa, thanks so much for being with us. 
Thank you so much for having me. Uh, We're looking at the fallout and looking at the reaction to this bill. Uh, We know now that Google is going to block news on their platforms because of Bill C-18. That's just part of the the backlash, I suppose. Meta has also said they will be news blocking. Uh, Was this what we were anticipating happening or is there any surprise here? So unfortunately, this is exactly what we not only expected would happen, but what we had warned our heritage minister about. Um, Unfortunately, the way the bill was written made this inevitable. I know your group has been calling for or had been calling for changes, at least to the way it was uh, the way it was written, hoping that the Senate would do that. Uh, Were there any changes made? So neither, unfortunately, the House nor the Senate fixed deep flaws with the bill that led to, you know, the recent announcements we heard from Google and Meta tying the revenue of these platforms to online shares of news content is a poison pill to the supposed purpose of the bill, which was to actually help and support Canadian news. And when when you say the the deep flaw, was that the main thing? Because I know there have been a lot of concerns with a lot of this bill, of of many parts of Bill C-18. But was that the main one? Was the revenue tying and knowing that there was no way these online giants were just going to say, oh, okay, well, we'll pay this amount of money? You know, it's it's funny because there were we did have so many concerns with this bill. And now we're really talking about news blocking, which we knew was inevitable. But, you know, the problems are rife. The bill C-18 directs a lot of the funding for this to large national outlets and not the small independent outlets that need it. It incentivizes poor quality clickbait journalism that does really well with platform shares, but will not help the well-researched expensive investigative journalism that Canadians really need. In a release that your group put out today as well, it it says that it's going to reduce quality news in Canada and lead to news censorship. But how do you see that playing out? So, you know, it's it's based upon a criteria system called um, QCJO. And the way in which these news organizations are classified is very broad. So, you know, troll pages and inaccurate news sites could end up becoming designated content. And we would then see low quality journalism reach the top of our pages, also partly because platforms are forbidden from ranking qualified organizations over that another. So, for instance, if we see these, you know, clickbait websites become certified, these platforms would not be able to rank them any differently than the National Post or the Globe and Mail or Global, for instance. Hmm. And so where does it kind of, where is the big disconnect here? Because the heritage minister has been talking about how great this is, that finally these online giants are going to pay their fair share, and this is great news for Canada. But then we hear from from your organizations and others as well who are very critical of this bill saying, no, that's not what's going to happen at all. It is going to do the things that you just said. So where is the disconnect? Because it's two completely different takes on this legislation. Definitely. And, you know, the intention behind this bill is what we needed. We do need a sustainable funding model that would support quality, diverse news in Canada. However, the actual practice and the implementation of how this has shaken out has really proved that that's not the result that we're going to get. We're going to see our news being blocked on platforms. It's going to be harder for us to access that high quality journalism. And what's worse is that it creates this link between platforms and news organizations where they are entering into financial deals that are not 
open to the public. So we are unable to hold these groups accountable because we don't know what kind of financial deals they've made with platforms. So how do you see this playing out then, or what might this look like once they start pulling back the Canadian content? If you search for something, in you do a Google search for something, is it just that all of the results, you're not going to get the Canadian content results? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. We don't really have the details of how exactly it will shake out. It will probably be something like what you just described. And this bill also was an attempt to kind of rein in big tech, um, you know, to... to release big tech's stranglehold over our news industry. But instead, it really gives platforms a get-out-of-jail-free card to just say, okay, I'm not going to host news at all if they don't want to participate. And that actually limits the amount of credible news that people in Canada can access. Right. And would it be then... So if there was another platform, is it because we're dealing with such large platforms as well that it's not like you could just go and search it somewhere else or access that content somewhere else? Or, or I mean, I guess it would have to be a platform that agreed to pay uh, the to pay what right. is in this bill. You know, so um, exactly. You could go, for instance, if you know that you're looking for a specific CBC article, you can go to cbc.ca to find that article, but it wouldn't come up in your Google search. And we have seen this happen in other countries. This is not new when, you know, Spain introduced a similar policy and Google News pulled out for eight years and only recently re-entered into the market in Spain. So we know what's going to happen. We have known since the beginning that this is what the course was going to take. And it's really unfortunate that um, an attempt to bring a better news industry to Canadians is going to lead to less sustainable and less available news credibility. Right. Because isn't it a benefit if you're a news agency and you're putting out content, isn't it a benefit that it gets caught in those searches, that it that people are directed to it and will go there and will see it uh, as opposed to even if they're not paying, even if the platforms aren't paying to do that, are you not getting the benefit of it? Exactly. You know, like if, if we know that we can Google something and our news sources will come up, that creates a very reliable and credible system for us. But instead, because these platforms are so big, are so international, and we are a part of their global market, it's easy for them to say, well, we just won't provide news and we won't provide access to those links in Canada and in the places in the world where this legislation doesn't exist. We'll continue to offer that service, but it's something that they can pull away from Canadians. And, you know, it's no skin off their back. But to us, we really lose access to the journalism that we need. I know that your group and many others have sent a lot of messages to members of parliament, to senators, uh, calling for changes, asking that this be uh, that the, the amendments be made. Is there anything else you can do at this point? You know, so it's likely that the CRTC will open up public consultations on this bill in the coming months, as they have with other things that have recently passed, like Bill C-11. So it'll be important to keep our eyes out for that and make sure that we are participating and letting the government know what we really need from this bill. But unfortunately, we're at a point where it would be better for them to go back to the beginning and scrap the bill entirely than to make modifications to it the way it is. All right. Rosa, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for your time today. Have a great day. You too. 
Well, as you've been hearing on the news, the union representing port workers in British Columbia says it has issued 72-hour strike notice. That means members are ready to walk off the job on Saturday. This was a statement that was issued yesterday morning. The International Longshore and Warehouse Union of Canada said workers are prepared to walk off because of several concerns. So that would affect more than 7,000 terminal cargo loaders at BC ports, even though the bargaining between the union and the British Columbia Maritime Employers Association has been going on since February. Well, what impact could this potentially have on the cruise ship industry? Joining us now is Barry Penner, legal advisor with Cruise Lines International Association. Barry Penner, thank you so much for taking some time today. You're very welcome. Great to join you. Uh, Is there uh, any news or do you have a a clear picture on what things might look like for the cruise industry if workers do walk off the job? We did receive some positive news this morning, uh, at least with respect to the port in Victoria, that the longshore workers have, uh, through the representatives, have indicated that they will not target uh, cruise ships and passengers, uh, but will provide service here in Victoria in the event that there is uh, otherwise a withdrawal of service by the ILWU. We are hoping to receive similar assurance regarding the Port of Vancouver, but at this point we have not yet received that reassurance. Uh, In the past, that has been the practice that the ILWU has uh, worked to make sure that cruise passengers were not inconvenienced, and that's certainly something that the Association on behalf of cruise lines and especially our passengers appreciates a great deal. We value the work that longshore workers do. They're a vital part of our economy, and the ships couldn't operate properly without them. So we certainly value uh, their contribution and uh, are grateful for the assurance we were given this morning with respect to Victoria, and we're now hoping to hear something similar with respect to Vancouver. Right. Is it strange that you would hear about one and not the other, or is it just a matter of hopefully them getting that information out? Uh I, I'm not in a position to say. I, I don't know enough about the what's happened previously about the sequencing of the information flowing. Uh, but my understanding is that talks were happening today in Vancouver specifically with respect to cruise and that it was going to be on the agenda this morning when the talks resumed at 10 a.m. All right. And, and like you said, too, that the workers uh, are vital or, or play an important role when cruise ships come to and leave the ports that they stop at in B.C. So if there was a scenario, if, if for some reason it was the announcement that things would be fine in Victoria, but if for some reason, say, the Vancouver port wasn't wasn't going along with that, that they, they weren't going to allow for cruise ships to come and go, what would happen in a scenario like that? Uh, there would be tremendous inconvenience if something were to happen. And so just think about this weekend. There are numerous ships uh, scheduled to call on Vancouver and to depart with passengers, uh, you know, literally thousands and thousands of passengers, most of whom have traveled from outside of Canada to come here to initiate their cruise to Alaska. Uh, It's a rule of thumb, about 80% of people getting on a ship in Vancouver have come from outside of Canada. Uh, So, They've already made their plans, and they're likely on their way here already. Uh, if something were to happen, uh, it would be very disappointing uh, for those people, obviously, to have their once-in-a-lifetime trip uh, negatively impacted. Right, and we're talking with the numbers and the point we're at in the cruise ship season. I would imagine there's not capacity at Victoria or capacity at other ports to, that would be able to pick up much extra volume. 
Yeah, the way it works is uh, Vancouver is a home port and ships uh, fuel up and provision there. They take on board supplies of all kinds, uh, literally from soup to nuts, uh, linen and medical supplies, clothing, food, alcohol, the whole works. Uh, and so that's what happens in Vancouver. And that's why every time a cruise ship calls in Vancouver, it's worth about $3.5 million to the economy because of all that purchasing, as well as the passengers coming through Vancouver. Um, Victoria is a port of call, which is an important role, but the ships are not provisioning here for the most part. They might pick up a few incidentals, but they're not typically refueling or uh, re-equipping themselves with all the food and other supplies that are required for a 7- or 10-day voyage. So it's, it's not a matter of just switching out Victoria for Vancouver. The two ports play a different role. Right, okay. And, and I think you've kind of answered my next question, but I was curious what exact role uh, the, the members of the union, the, the members of the International Longshore and Warehouse Union play with cruise ships. But I would imagine it's everything that you just said, that they would be the ones who are facilitating that? Yes, moving what we call stores on the ships and helping take... Uh, refuse and other recycled materials and uh, everything else off the ship uh, when the ship is doing a a turnaround in Vancouver. Um, So literally not much happens without the the longshore workers when it comes to a ship coming in or out of Vancouver. In your knowledge, to your knowledge, has this ever happened before? I know you said that they often don't target cruise ships if there is a strike or if there's a job action happening. But has this happened before where the cruise ship industry has been caught up in job action or has been negatively impacted because of it? You might remember that last summer there was strike action by, uh, I think, tugboat operators or uh, workers associated with the barge. service a tugboat service in vancouver harbor and in fact uh that did disrupt and delay the departure of at least one or two cruise ships on a weekend i think it was in august which was very disappointing when we were just trying to get the cruise season cruise back in action in canada again after a two-year hiatus um and uh in fact if that was not the ilwu that took part in that action it was a different union and uh um, let's just say I think some conversations happened and uh, that other union uh, saw the wisdom of uh, getting out of the way so that the cruise ship could leave uh, eventually. And then that did not happen again. So the tradition, at least with respect to British Columbia and the ILWU, is that uh, they make efforts not to inconvenience cruise passengers. Right. So when do you think, when does the industry need to hear about this or to hear from the ILWU? Like you said, you've already heard about Victoria. Uh, Here we are on the Thursday before the long weekend. They're going to be in a position where they could potentially walk off the job on Saturday. Uh, When do you need to know one one way or the other for sure that they will also uh, be that way in, in in Vancouver and not impact cruise ships? Uh, this morning would not have been too late. Um, we would appreciate uh, hearing some formal or uh, written confirmation as soon as possible. Uh, but uh, in the absence of that, we're having to carry on. And uh, we're simply uh, anticipating that past, um, the past will also be uh, an indicator of what will happen here in the present, uh, which is that the ILW will not inconvenience thousands of people that have traveled a long distance to be here. Right, so business as usual then as far as the cruise ships, and like you said, many of them that are arriving here this weekend are already well into their cruises? Uh, people are, uh, there's cruise ships on their way to Vancouver, returning from Alaska right now, 
uh, and there are people traveling on airplanes from all over the world coming to Vancouver as we speak so that they can start their cruise this weekend. Um, so um, for those passengers already in flight, it's, it's too late for them to change their plans. They will be arriving in Vancouver, and they have paid to go on a cruise, and that's what they're going to be hoping to do to create uh, lasting memories with their families uh, and having a fabulous experience. It would certainly be very uh, unfortunate if that was compromised in some way. All right. Well, we will stay tuned to see what happens next with this dispute. Uh, Barry Penner, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate you making the time for us. You're welcome, Jill.